Hello everyone, this is Brady from Freedom Talks and today we're pleased to have Dr. Adam Miller. He is the CEO and Medical Director of Arise MD, where it is their mission to help men and women get the most out of the second half of life. Dr. Miller has an extensive background including dentistry, surgery, and anesthesiology. Welcome to Freedom Talks, Dr. Adam Miller. Thank you, Brady. So good to be here. So, um, it's been, uh, it's, it's nice to have you on. You spoke at uh, Men's Night, which was a something we put on here at Freedom. Um, and uh, Molly, who helped put that together, was very impressed and said, you know, why don't we get you on a podcast? You know how to talk. And you just took me through an excellent kind of warm-up exercise. I feel ready to go. <laughs> uh, nice and sharp now. Um, yeah, that's combat brain training. For, uh, just putting a plug in there to John Kennedy. You, people can go online and look at that. But uh, a real simple analog, this wasn't digital, uh, brain training exercise to get us focused. Now, does John Kennedy, I feel like I've heard that, um, did he, does he do um, like group work for like sports teams? He does. So. Yeah, and we, I think that uh, those who listen to a lot of podcasts and leadership and health hacking and what I like to call the, the citizen scientist movement out there, um, the people have... Um, many people have developed their own morning routines and, you know, the win the morning, win the day kind of thing. Yep. Uh, for me, neuro priming is really, really important. And this is just a, a small portion of my morning priming exercise. By the way, I also think, uh, as, as a dentist, I also think that we need to prime our palates in the morning. Really? Um, I coach my patients on, um, having their first bite of any food be something that's fibrous, crunchy. Uh, and I think a carrot is the perfect thing to prime the palate in the morning. Okay. Uh, what we have learned as well through the application of CGMs on a lot of patients, continuous glucose monitors, is that um, breaking the fast, uh, we used to think it's the feast is, 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 is really important. Um, it's not just the fast. But we now know through studying these continuous glucose monitor results that what you choose to break your fast with really matters. So those out there who are listening who say, well, I'm, I'm that guy who fasts or a woman who fasts 18 hours a day and I eat for only six hours, the first bite of food matters, meaning make it zero carb, high protein, high fiber. You'll get less of a sustained glycemic response if you do that. So there's a school of thought out there that, hey, I, I, paid, I paid my dues with the fast. Now I can eat whatever I want in the feast. Uh, but that first bite of food really matters. So brain training, combat brain training, going back to that, is part of my neuropriming in the morning. And uh, uh, I think whether it's combat brain training or another brain training exercise, it's worth it because we're so inundated and distracted. Okay. Yep. Um, so before we get too much into like, because I mean, you, you do a lot. Um, you are very, very well-rounded. <laughs> um, Let's let's start with a little bit of your background, and, and you have kind of a cool story, I, I think, coming to where you are currently in life, and, and as a practitioner, and as a businessman, and, and all of that, and as a leader. Um, so can you kind of walk me through, like, it, it sounded like you became a dentist first, so can you kind of walk walk me through your path of healthcare? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You, you said I do a lot, and I think... I was just crazy enough and obsessed enough with about learning to spend 17 years and a million dollars to get all these different degrees and experiences. And uh, I think that, um, you know, the talks that I do, I do paid talks every year for financial organizations. And 
I pour my heart into the science and updating people on stem cells and anti-aging and managing COVID the right way, all these different topics. The number one question people ask me at the end is, how the heck did you end up here? You know, what's your story? And it just, it reminds me over and over that story is the most compelling force in the universe. And as I just quickly tell you my story, what that means is those of us who are in the healthcare space and patients, when you enter into a space that you hope is going to bring healing, you better embrace and appreciate the fact that the story you're telling yourself, the story that you think others are telling you, the story you're telling yourself about your doctor, all those storylines, those narratives in your brain that are highly stimulating, highly engaging to the emotional center uh, of the brain, they really matter. And so I spent extensive time up front getting story out of my patients. And uh, to tell you, um, just in brief, um, I, uh, I, I, I started off as a dentist. I, I went to dental school. I took early entry out of undergraduate, um, my undergraduate training. And uh, I realized that um, uh, I wasn't going to be satiated with dentistry. Um, and from there went to, I spent some time in the Caribbean. My parents were living in the Caribbean and I got, to, I got a chance even before I graduated dental school to practice a little bit of dentistry in a real world setting. In fact, a beautiful real world setting and just knew I wasn't going to be satisfied. Uh, went to medical school. I entered an oral maxillofacial surgery program, uh, at the university of Pittsburgh that, um, that really combines dentistry and medicine in, in a, in a unique, beautiful way. And, uh, what that means is that I spent the first, my first year of medical school working as a dental resident. So I got exempt from the first year of medical school because I was already a dentist. In the second year, then I joined, I suddenly showed up in the medical school class and introduced myself to everyone. There were two of us in the program. And that uh, began a six-year journey for me through healthcare in a very unique way where I spent 100 to 110 hours a week for seven years of my life in a major medical center as both a dentist, a medical student, um, and a surgical resident simultaneously. Um, and so I lived in a hospital, taking trauma call um, every two nights. Uh, and I would literally go uh, from 5 a.m. rounds with a long coat on with, as a surgical resident with a team being called Dr. Miller to running to the call room, grabbing uh, a granola bar, and then getting in the lecture hall and sitting down to listen to uh, doctors who were calling me Adam the night before in the trauma bay or the emergency room, uh, I, having to address them as professor and being their student. And that, that was my existence for, for six years. And at the end of that, um, I had accomplished medical school, also got my degree, did general surgery for a year and a half, did critical care medicine then for a year. Um, and adding that medicine at the end of my training was one of those controversial things that had ever happened in the surgical residency. Um, I got to the end of my surgical training and uh, had some personal challenges in my life that kind of gave me a lens. Um, you know, the, the opening up of uh, our, our view of life through adversity, really. Uh, but it made me look at my journey um, and say, gosh, I've given up most of my 20s and uh, half of my 30s now. And um, I could see that I was becoming very myopic as a professional. Forget what industry I was in. I could just tell that I'd been on this huge arcing journey um, through this industry called healthcare. I'd become a dentist. I'd worked as a dentist a little bit. I'd now lived in a hospital setting for six years. And I could just tell that as I got closer to the finish line, I wasn't, my lens and my, my capacity wasn't broadening. 
I was getting more and more myopic. I, there was, I could see that there were about 12 to 15 procedures that the rest of my life was sort of going to uh, be comprised of. And it didn't add up to me. It didn't make sense to me. So I added a year of medicine, critical care medicine, to my surgical residency, which had never been done in our program before. And it's, it really disrupted uh, the, the culture and uh, the ethos in our program. And I'm saying that because looking back, that was my first warning flare that um, the, the system overall creates myopic super specialists. Yeah, why, like, how did you know that that was like culture changing? Was there like backlash to that decision? Like from others or from? Oh yeah, I mean, I was, uh, I mean, just the, just the suggestion uh, that I would add a year of medicine to my surgical residency at the age of 35. Um, that uh, created a huge ripple in our program, um, and it's not a knock against, I'm saying the program, not any individuals. Sure. But the, but the mindset was, how dare you yeah. suggest that one of the top programs in the country need to be modified in any way by anyone. Yeah, like almost said it wasn't enough, right? That's how they were looking e at exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it'd be one thing to say you want to add a year of neurosurgery or plastic surgery, yeah. but you're going to go do medicine? What, what that meant practically is that when I did finally do it, um, even though I, there was the threat that I might get kicked out of my program, um, and, and I'm not going to, uh, I mean, I had gone through a divorce. There were things in my personal life that really shook everything up and made me see more clearly the professional side of my life and what things were wrong. And um, when I did finally add that year of medicine, I went from call as a surgical resident calling the medical residents fleas. Literally, the nurse would come up and say, hey, that woman that you did the trauma surgery on last night, her blood sugar is three, 330. And I would say, what are you telling me that for? Call the fleas. We referred to the medical doctors as fleas. They just kind of hang around and stick to the patients, not really doing much. I then had to join them and deal with the backlash from, from them saying, like, you know, this guy's a, this guy's a jerk. Yeah. So they yeah. use more colorful typical, language, of course. Like, surgeon. Typical surgery. surgeon. Yeah. Um, and, but that was, I look back and I think that was, um, that was the pain and that was the, uh, that was the best year of my life uh, as a professional because it, Adding that year of medicine really opened my eyes to uh, how ungratifying it is for medical graduates, uh, residents, um, to give up so much of the training, to give up so much of your capacity. Uh, and so anyway, I, I added that year of medicine and it really made me a better doctor. And then I didn't know this was going to happen, but uh, as God would have it, I went into private practice. I did some medical mission work in Honduras and Guatemala. Um, I had a life-threatening accident. A, a, a bridge collapsed in Honduras while I was on that trip, and that um, that really kind of woke me up to the spiritual side of life and to to the spiritual side of medicine and the fact that I think I need to help patients reconcile their own death in order to bring more life to their um, to their path. Uh, after that mission work, I went into private practice. I did everything in head and neck surgery, facial cosmetic work. Um, lights, lasers, sleep apnea work, reconstructive. I did everything I thought that would take me 20 years in about three years because I went to a really, really busy practice in a semi-rural setting near Penn State. 
That's important because Penn State's one of the leading fencing centers in America. So I started to learn to fence. And because of that, I met one of the Olympic uh, fencing coaches, a French Olympic fencing coach, Monsieur Martin. And if somehow, some way he hears this uh, healing high fives to you, uh, maestro, we call him maestro. Anyway, I ended up doing surgery on him. And that, uh, that went smashingly well, and I got invited to Paris. And that experience of doing surgery on him and then going to visit him at the training center in um, Paris opened up, gave me some, um, it gave me a, a little bit of uh, exposure, I guess. And I was approached by um, one of the liaisons for Monsieur Martin who said, I'd love to have you come join us in Southeast Asia. We've built medical tourism programs. And for people who don't really understand what that means, it's just Generally, what happens is in, a, in an economically favorable area, you bring high talent um, and people travel to that space to take advantage of the currency um, while still getting excellent care. And ostensibly, the system is set up to be more efficient and more enjoyable as well. So I was recruited to Southeast Asia and uh, helped a private hospital build a medical tourism program. Uh, around what I called, at the time in 2008, integrative aesthetics. So we covered um, cosmetic dentistry, we covered mainly head and neck cosmetic surgery, uh, some total body work, lights and lasers, um, and we had foot reflexology, we had nutrition, we had massage, we had five different languages being spoken in the clinic. And um, so that in 2008, I was doing at that time what just made sense to me as a guy who was a highly trained surgical subspecialist, saw issues with the myopic nature of our training system, added that year of medicine, and then there was no turning back. Like I, I, could, I could only look at the whole person, even as a surgeon, applied that to a business model in Southeast Asia that was very aggressive. For the first time in my career, at the age of 37, I was um, invited into discussions about business and realized that there's a massive pot of money in healthcare. I mean, I was working for one private hospital and I, 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 they didn't tell me they're gonna do this, they just invited me to a meeting, I showed up and it was <laughs> six guys who deal with all the books in the business. Yeah. And they were showing me profit and loss and these numbers and I, it was all alphabet soup to me. I didn't know at first, but I came to realize this is huge business and uh, physicians typically get a tiny percentage of it, and yet we're the worker bees. And so um, they gave me permission to think about business, which being a dentist first, the seeds were planted in dental school. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you in medical school, and I love my alma mater, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, but in medical school, the general message, even to this day, is we don't talk about money you're going to be a doctor for God's sake. The money will take care of itself. Just take care of people. Sure. And uh, so to finish my story, I had that six-year experience there. And uh, if, I, if I may just interject a little bit of spirituality here, I was jogging on a beach one Tuesday afternoon after putting a woman's face back together from a motorcycle accident, uh, feeling really good about myself. Uh, I was a single guy making huge money. And uh, I was jogging on the beach uh, and, and thinking, where am I going to go next? Like this, this weekend, am I going to go to Hong Kong? Am I going to go kiteboarding again in Australia? And I heard a voice um, that I think all of us have, the, have access to if we open ourselves up to it. But I heard a voice on that jog on that beach that said, we're going home. We're going after the heart of men. Um, and I didn't know what that meant. 
I just knew that it was the only time in my life I've ever heard an inner voice that I think was my own, could have been God's, I don't know, but it was powerful. And I turned down a contract that would, would, would have been the highest paying contract of my career at that point yep. to go to Singapore. And I started a journey um, to reinvent my career. And uh, I was standing in Cappadocia, Turkey. I was doing some consulting work for a dermatology company. And I was watching this hot air balloon be inflated. And the side of that balloon started to rise up and I saw these brilliant colors. I saw the team working to blow that hot air in and this beautiful setting. And then when we got in that basket and went up over Love Valley and started to drift out, I said, this is more of what I'm missing. This is what I want to do. I don't want to just change the exterior. I don't want, I'm just burnt out and tired of dealing with two millimeter eyelid changes and you know, a nasal tip or some minor cosmetic thing. I want to be involved with creating more of what uh, we, we refer to at Arise MD as the arete day, the Greek word meaning living at your potential. And it takes effort. It takes a team to unfold that balloon, to lay it out properly, to get organized, to blow that hot air in there. There's investment, there's energy. Um, but when you do it right and you inflate that balloon maximally, you get lift. You get lift above the fray. You get new vision on life. And it's, it changes your trajectory. You land after that balloon ride and go, I just went to a different altitude. And so that's where Arise MD came from. And I came back to America begrudgingly because uh, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really want to come back to this system. I was, I, was, um, uh, I was afraid of what it might do to me and my spirit, uh, to be honest. But friends, family uh, needed my help. I started spending more time here, uh, was still fighting the idea that I would set up practice here, um, but I got sick. We killed a boar in the middle of the jungle in Borneo, and uh, I got water baptized in the middle of the jungle, believe it or not. Part of that ceremony was we killed a boar, and a absolutely wonderful meal, but about three days later, I started to get some GI upset. Within the coming weeks, hair started falling out, and a fast forward 12 months, I've now, I had made about six trips back to the U.S., spent tens of thousands of dollars trying to figure it out, and to bring this all back right here to Milwaukee, I was sitting at my cardiologist's office in the hospital where, as a teenager, I used to cut the lawn oh. around there, and uh, it's the hospital that I used to dream of uh, joining the, those in the white coats. I remember cutting the lawn as a teenager, watching these demigods walking in those white coats and thinking, one day, I'm going to be that. And now I'm sitting there as a patient, and I'm talking to my cardiologist saying, uh, three nights ago was the scariest night of my life. I woke up, my heart was pounding, my heart rate was 200, um, called 911. I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, I found out in the ER, it was pericarditis. And uh, he didn't want to have a discussion about my gut health and the parasites and how that could be influencing things. And I'll be frank with you, I was depressed. I was just depressed. I was at a, one of the lowest points in my life because doctors, if you haven't heard, don't make good patients. And male doctors who don't have a game plan and don't understand what's going on, we can implode. Uh, and thankfully I didn't take up drinking or drugs or anything like that, but I was depressed and when he's sitting there, um, telling me that, you know what, just take some drugs and it'll all be fine. And I'm saying, you know what, those drugs you're recommending have a high complication rate 
sometimes irreversible to liver and pancreas. Um, and did you know that in the ER, I just took 800 milligrams of Motrin and my heart rate went from bouncing all over the place from 150 to 90 to 170 to a nice steady 70 beats per minute. Um, can we talk about an alternative? And the answer was, do what you got. Do, hey, if you want to be a difficult patient, do what you want to do. Really? <laughs> so I was sitting in a chair like this, hard-backed, um, and he left the room with his nurse. And she came back in and shut the door and locked it. And I thought, this is going to be really good or this is going to be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, look, they are, um, I sit in on their meetings there's a quota system. When you go out to the front desk, they have already pinged your insurance and they're going to run a whole bunch of tests. You have the right, and she's looking at me very sternly, you have the right as a patient to not run those labs, Yeah. to not do that. And I looked at her and I said, of course I have the right. Yeah. She felt like she was doing me this huge favor. I said, so sure enough, uh, and then she said to me, and this was a game changer, she said, um, and by the way, um, I want to be a patient of yours. Oh, wow. And I just looked at her and I said, I have no interest in you know, doctoring right now. I'm not, saying, I'm not staying in the U.S. I want to go do another project abroad. This country's crazy. Um, and she said, well, if you set up a practice, let me know. I walked out to the front desk and I just tried to walk out of the office. And the front desk girl said, wait a minute, we got to set you up on all this testing. And I said, no, thank you. And she looked at me incredulous. Yeah. That I was telling her, no. Yeah, this like, is my body, this is my life, this is my decision, and um, I want some time to think about what I'm going to do next. And I went down the hall and I got my blood work from the ER and found out that my thyroid was way out of whack, which is linked to pericarditis. Um, and what's just absolutely amazing is last week, uh, the nurse who was in that cardiologist's office who told me that, uh, she walked into my office five years later. I hadn't seen her since. But that moment for me when I finally got in my car was, um, that was the, the moment of reckoning about what am I going to do here? Um, you know, and what I ended up doing for myself as a patient was I, you know, deep breath, looking online, signed up for a couple courses that would never pass the grade for my chairman from my residency. Because they're integrative, they've got holistic discussions about energy and nutrition, those things. But what they did have was they had a whole bunch of um, lectures on GI health. And I saw some discussions about parasites and um, dysbiosis. And, and I went to these meetings as a guy who was trying to heal himself. Because I felt uh, that the medical system was not going to give me the answers. And when I started to get well based on recommendations from these meetings and um, meetings with, with organizations like the A4M um, and the IFM and these other groups that are seen largely as fringe, kind of new era, my, my traditional colleagues would say kind of woo-woo, whatever that means. <laughs> but I'm telling you that that connected me to people who connected me to other people that got me well. And I was able to address my parasites uh, I spent, it took about a year. Um, I was, I was on sabbatical officially during that time. Um, I had to give up a huge paycheck. Uh, I had moved into a small apartment. I didn't buy a new car. I got lean and mean. And, uh, I came out of that, um, 
with passion and desire uh, to be a part of the solution. And so uh, I hung up a shingle here in Mequon, Wisconsin, and uh, stayed in touch with patients from Asia, still was doing telemedicine at that time. Um, even though it was quote unquote, uh, you know, not approved or there wasn't a formal regulation around me doing telemedicine, it was like, I know at this point that I better trust myself as a practitioner uh, and these people are my patients and continuity of care matters. So I started doing some telemedicine and set up a little shingle and I just said, I put it on God, you know, you brought me back here, you help heal me. And if you want to build something, build it. So now we're three and a half years in and we curate the lives of a couple hundred incredible people. We refer to our patients as citizen scientists because um, every other industry in the world crowdsources user experience to accelerate and improve their product development, except healthcare, at least overtly. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the reality is we have a quote from Albert Schweitzer in our office that talks about the greatest healing happening when we allow the inner physician that's in each of us to go to work. I, I think that's a, I mean, I'll let you continue. I think that's an amazing uh, kind of revelation you have because, I mean, if you think about a lot of patients that, you know, we see in physical therapy, anywhere else, if they're not bought in, ultimately their long-term goals aren't going to be met, at least not normally, unless it's something simple. Right. Uh, we, what I talk about with our patients is it doesn't matter what they come to me with. Yeah. Erectile dysfunction, sleep apnea, issues, getting their mojo back, stem cells, integrative derm, uh, dermatology stuff, dentistry. You said it. We do a ton of stuff. I was just crazy enough to get all the training. But the number one thing I start with every patient is give me at least two deep emotional whys for you wanting to get healthier because you don't need to get healthier. Well, yes, I do, doctor. I need to get, no, I, you don't understand. I need to get healthier. No, you don't because you, you should have been in here a year ago. You're still taking your vacation. You're still getting to work on time. You're still making dinner. You're still mowing the lawn. You don't need it. Okay. You want it. And I need to know what, what is the emotional story yep. that we can highlight and bring to life because we don't treat numbers. We treat a life. I don't treat numbers. I don't treat an individual. I'm treating a life. And when I open that up and I engage people, that, that very well-developed emotional side of the brain, which the, you know, the Heath brothers in their, in their book, How to Make Change When Change is Hard, talk about that being the elephant. The rider is the prefrontal cortex, you know, the, the higher processing area. But comparatively speaking, the emotional side of our brain, our life is an elephant. Um, so we, we, you have to engage the deep emotional why. And part of the reason for that is thoughts become proteins. That electrical energy across your brain that's a thought, which is measurable as an electrical activity, an electrical event, will eventually hit a nerve and become a chemical event in the mm -hmm. form of a neurotransmitter, yep. which will then start downstream cascades, which leads to knock, knock, knock on the cellu cellular door, the cellular wall, that will send a message to the DNA to unravel, transcribe a protein. And those proteins are their anabolic building positive love letters, or those proteins are catabolic breakdown, poison pen letters, or it's a status quo membo, um, which the body really likes um, yeah. most of the time. 
So yes, I think one of the one of the greatest discoveries I've had is that my medical training that I look back and thought was myopic, uh, purely from a lack of integrative mindedness or collaboration or interdisciplinary collaboration, that was that was just the surface. The deeper issue with our medical training it was that we didn't really come away from our training understanding human motivation, which is why you have the number one unmet public health need being mental health, which is why one of the fastest growing professions in the Western world is life coaching, health coaching, coaching. Um, so where that's where I begin with people is to say, if we don't understand that health is a top-down phenomenon, it begins in your mind, and there isn't a halo in your mind, in your story, in your inner narrative about you investing time and money to be here right now, then the chances of us creating durable change in your life and truly improving your quality of life and redirecting you so that you can live an erite day, you can live at the highest level of potential, um, it, it it's, it diminishes, and you know how we know that is that the majority of Americans who diet go on and off four to five diets a year. When they end up having success on a diet, it's almost always a diet they had been on before. Why does it work now, but it didn't work back then? Mindset change. Exactly. Yeah. Now, this is a loaded question, but we're going to dip our toes into some controversial stuff. Sure. That yeah. I uh, have resisted going into, but some of it we've got to talk about. And that, and that is COVID-19, correct? Part of it's COVID-19 and part of it's just the economic forces that are at play. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it's incredibly interesting um, how a lot of this with the way the pandemic has played out and yeah. kind of more research that come out, it's coming out every day, right, about uh, like COVID-19 long haulers, all of those complications, obviously how um, a lot of medical practices have had to approach continuing care at the peak of the pandemic when um, all of a sudden everybody was in this rush to do telemedicine and didn't seem like any of the platforms were ready to go, whether it was insurances, being ready to cover it or having plans in place to cover it, um, or even, you know, PTs, us included, trying to put together, we, you know, had something, but not having like a set system already, but it sounds like through all of your experiences and being able to um, gather all that information, knowledge and experience, and you were almost kind of set up perfectly to actually help. So even though you might not have wanted to originally get into it, you kind of were almost set to do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well said. So. Yeah. And I, it's just a matter of, I think a life principle that I value, which is staying malleable. Mm -hmm. um, that change is the constant. And uh, whether you're reading Harvard Business Review on fulfillment and happiness or any other leadership stuff, if you're not learning, you're not happy. Yep. This is part of being human. I want to jump up to altitude and just say that we're, I'm going to land on patient responsibility, believe it or not, as the main take-home point. And to be excited as a person out there who maybe isn't thinking like a citizen scientist yes, yet, but I'm going to underscore patient responsibility in the new era as being critical and having advocacy, be your own, being your own best advocate, 
um, getting in the habit of reading and, and learning about the amazing human organism that you're driving around every day called your body. Um, because I think that's the most important overriding principle. Um, it's an inconvenient truth. The low-hanging fruit that people like to spend most of the time talking about is the system is broken. And uh, the multiple, um, <laughs> just in the past 24 hours, the number of people who've wanted to engage me in discussions about very controversial conspiracy theories and the government this and the government that, the number one take-home principle as you're filtering through the sea of knowledge out there and listening to different podcasts is get into whatever is going to empower you personally to take better responsibility for you and your family. Okay, so back step. The, the system isn't broken, in my opinion. It has an identity issue. We brought home a glorified version of the World War II MASH unit and put it into an ivory tower, whereby we continue to do in the highest net earning procedures or parts of the hospital are surgery, critical care, emergency medicine, and studies. It's a glorified MASH unit. You, if you ever watched the show MASH or your parents, you never saw them sitting outside the green tent talking about uh, optimizing the human body and preventing, right? It's, it's, it's reactive medicine. Mm -hmm. So. I don't think the system is truly broken. I think it's had an identity issue for a long time that we're all waking up to. The system never set up itself and promoted with a big banner, we're here to optimize you and prevent future disease. Now, they never overtly said we are here to treat, only to treat disease, but, but they never said that we're here to prevent disease. Yeah. Yep. So they've, they've kind of followed, the system's kind of followed through on what it promoted most, which is we're here to treat disease. And so when people talk about it, the, uh, Dr. Miller, is there is the two-tier system coming to life in America? Absolutely. Uh, there's cash pay and there's insurance-based. All right, that's here. It's going to continue to grow. But the more important two-tier system is proactive medicine and proactive patients, which we call citizen scientists, and reactive medicine and reactive doctors and reactive patients. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, the system's reactive, you know, that's, that's the worst form of medicine. Here's the problem. Patient responsibility. The vast majority of people in America, probably 95%, are still living a very reactive lifestyle about their health. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're spending dollars in a reactive setting. And here's the key. They need doctors that speak that language. Yeah. Reactive yeah. patients don't do well with proactive doctors. Which makes sense. And that, but yeah. it makes sense. But people really need to stop and think about that. Because I can tell you from the trenches, my, my dad, who's a Midwest CEO type, who was raised in reactive medicine, kind of uh, took that on with that male bravado CEO thing. Um, the system's right. Evidence-based medicine is right. The ivory tower is right. What they say is right. Bottom line. Not open to other discussions. Okay. Sure. That's how he was raised. He needs a doctor that aligns with his language and his lens in order to be effective for his path. Mm -hmm. That's the really important two-tier. And that's, where we pay, that's why I'm landing in patient responsibility. Um, it's easy to blame any aspect of life that's dissatisfying to you or painful to you on others. And people who are saying that, they're not satisfied with their sleep or their pain management or what have you, and the system's broken, the system's broken. 
Um, they, they have some arguments here and there that are for real, but the big issue moving forward for America and healthcare is right now we have a tiny minority of people growing, it's growing, but who are proactive. They need proactive doctors. I'm one of them. But the vast majority of America is reactive. And the, you have to think about the doctors who are serving them need to be reactive also. Otherwise, they're not going to, it's not going to work. So as you kind of talk about this preventative um, approach versus reactive approach, um, like what are some of the solutions that you propose both from the, the healthcare provider's standpoint and as you had said about the, the patient becoming um, their own scientist, right, and learning about more of their health and shifting that focus from being uh, reactive to preventative, as you said, most of the mindset of the U.S. is still in that reactive phase. And so how do we slowly phase um, into the next generation of being more preventative in our approach? I think it's important to step up and just look at truths. And some of them are really inconvenient, like the fact that people have the right to do what they want with their bodies. Mm -hmm. That was a huge evolution in my approach to patients that really set me free as a practitioner. And I just wanna pause and say that that's a really important statement because over 90% of physicians are uh, in surveys say that they're dissatisfied with their career. And we're supposed to lead the charge. You know, a 2008 article in the Wall Street Journal, 2008, it was 90% of physicians said they would do something different tomorrow if they could get the same pay. And we're supposed to be leading the charge. So there's a problem. But think about this. It was a huge shift for me as a practitioner to sit with a patient who was paying me to optimize his body. And he comes back from a huge business trip in Asia, having inked a deal. And then after that deal, he went and did one of his favorite things in the world, which was to enjoy cuisine in high volume and walked in my office with 20 extra pounds. It's like, mm -hmm. where did that come from? You know, you're paying me to optimize you. No, he's not. He's paying me to teach him and to lead him and to advocate for him and to navigate for him and to walk with him. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, at that season of his life, he sits down in the big chair in my office and he puts his hands on his new belly. Mm -hmm. And he looks at me and I go to the whiteboard and I outline our progress, where we've been, here's the recent labs, here's where you're trending, uh, here's our benchmarks that you outlined a year ago. Uh, now let's dig into the nitty gritty and figure out what we're gonna optimize next. He looks at me with total content and peace, more than I was experiencing that week and says, I know you're upset about this, <laughs> uh, but I'm okay. I have decided, I think he said, through. 90 days from now, I'll get back on track. I'm gonna, so I'll be all right, doc. But for right now, I'm totally okay with this. And I'm trained to not be okay with that. Yeah. But that was a shift for me that, oh, um, the, the translation, uh, the word doctor is based in doceria, which translates as teacher, not healer. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to walk with him, to teach him what I know, uh, and to not shy away from all aspects of life, not just perfect metabolics and perfect body shape and composition. 
So I think on the practitioner side, a very, very scary thing presents itself, which is, um, are you truly willing to care for and walk with people, which would require you being vulnerable also, and would require you at times taking a loss on the scoreboard, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, this is the whole George Burns smoked a cigar every day, but he lived into his 90s. You know, who am I to tell him yeah. not to smoke that? Um, on the you know on the patient side, uh, I think that going back to this idea that the majority of Americans are in a reactive mindset, and therefore here's the new thought. Here, th therefore, the doctors serving them need to speak the reactive language. Interestingly, highlights the deep need for the other vitamin C, which is connection and community. Okay. We, we need to, and this is why health coaching and those, those instances that uh, are those companies that offer community, whether it's Noom or any of these, many, they, they recognize that a great, maybe the greatest accelerator in getting people where they want to go is organizing them in the right tribe. All right. The problem that we're saying is that the doctors are, they're reactive. So are they really in the right tribe is what you're asking me. And that comes down to uh, this very exciting thing happening in, in the modern era of information and the opportunity for teaching or doctoring coming from new sources. There is, if I, if I want to address those patients out there that are complaining at the Friday fish fry about how bad their doctor is while they are taking their body that's got a BMI of 42 and going to have three beers and a basket of fries and all this, and they haven't exercised in two weeks, um, you have the right to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but are you truly taking responsibility for that? And so I think there's a discussion to be had, almost like an actuarial type of discussion about uh, doing the thing that I, I try to do in my practice uh, to me, that is probably the place where medicine needs to evolve next, which is trying to give more realistic risk stratification. All right, you with me? So yeah. I, I think, yes, the identity thing is a bigger deal than the system being broken. Uh, but there are economic pressures that, because of the way the system is, because of its identity, because it's a reactive system, because it fixes broken bodies. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there are economic pressures in that business model. And by the way, let's all be reminded, it's a for-profit business. Yep. There are economic pressures in that for-profit business to, that, would, that would diminish or hinder the education or the doctoring of patients about what their true risk is. Because if you, if you are really good at connecting with people, having doctors or teachers that were vulnerable enough to connect on a human level and give that, that other vitamin C while educating them on, while asking them, look, you want to be at your granddaughter's wedding dancing with her. Yep. The guy says to you with a tear in his eye, yeah, I, you know, I didn't have my dad because he died of a heart attack. Here's the, here are the stats and the numbers. If these biomarkers, like homocysteine, for instance, in 1997, there was New England Journal of Medicine publishes an article of, uh, sort of underscoring this new era of biomarkers where homocysteine... Um, which is a, an amino acid, normal byproduct in the body, should be converted in the liver to methionine in a healthy liver. Um, it's easily, easily measurable in blood. Uh, 
1997 New England Journal says if your homocysteine is uh, above 12, you, your 10-year survival, if you already have an existing um, coronary artery uh, condition of coronary artery disease, your 10-year survival is 85%. Okay, those sort of numbers start to get interesting, kind of can be compelling, especially if you're more engineering-minded and numbers-minded. I think uh, medicine has done a disservice in not giving people a more human side uh, while educating them on what true risk stratification is instead of you shouldn't drink too much and you shouldn't eat too much and you need to exercise more. Um, because most guys, highly educated, highly successful guys, when you sit down and have a conversation like this in my office with them, whether, um, whether it's true or not that the system did its job or didn't do its job, the reality is the majority of those guys walk away saying, the, what I heard was, um, you need to change in ways that I already knew, Yeah, but they're not giving me a compelling path, tribe, community um, to make that change. Yeah. It's like the, truly like under the surface, like you said, it's like eat healthy, exercise, live your life. It's a very simple solution for a lot of things, but just because it's a simple solution doesn't mean it's simple on the execution side of it. And to get to that point where you want to execute on that, right? You need all of these motivators and learning can be one of the largest motivators. Am I correct in that or, or is, is that, am I misunderstanding a little bit? Um, the, I mean, one of the key points is if there's an area that I can criticize medicine in, um, it is this, we have done a really poor job of truly uh, uh, educating the public on what risk stratification is, and we have, we have not applied research dollars to better understanding true risk stratification. Take the number one killer, for instance, coronary artery disease, heart mm -hmm. attack. Yeah. Every 46 seconds, we had a heart attack in this country. Half of those heart attacks, the victim, the patient is laying in the hospital bed in the ER, and the wife is being told, um, you know, he's having a heart attack. And she says, we were, we were at the primary, 40% of those patients were at the primary care doctor within the last six months. Yeah. And roughly 40 to 50% of them had the top five risk factors controlled. So if we just started there and in, at a, at a, in the trenches level, um, the, way this, the way this plays out for me is most cardiologists are not talking with their patients about the impact of cortisol, okay. which we've known since the 80s high cortisol after 30 minutes starts to plaque arteries, drive calcium into arteries. Um, so I just sort of look at these kind of real world, world barometers and remember I was trained as a surgeon, so I just kind of look around and I go, you know, we've got all the number one killer, okay? Like, um, that's, pretty, that's a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. We should probably be extremely evolved in our risk reduction protocols and uh, it should pretty be, it should pretty much be a household conversation, right? Yeah. Um, but yet our clinicians in the trenches aren't even talking about cortisol and its impact on the heart with patients. And the clinicians will say, well, I don't have time. And if I do, guys don't want to hear it. But the thing they're not saying is, and you haven't been trained with the tools to talk about how to reduce cortisol. So what is it in that situation? What is it? What is it like to be a patient in your office compared to 
what we just heard in a, the general healthcare setting? It starts with uh, me as a practitioner who um, uh, has an extraordinary collection of training um, that I could hide behind, being humble and vulnerable mm -hmm. about the fact that I am in a service industry and I need to approach my business uh, like the finest restaurants that I love to dine in and I'm happy to tip them. I need to approach it like the, the hotels that I love. Um, it is a product. It is a for-profit business. Mm. And my product happens to be the welfare and the doctoring of patients. And I, I'm not 100% responsible for your outcomes. I am 100% responsible for doing everything I can with my training and my faith to uh, be the instrument for you. And so um, in my practice, we, uh, I will say you, in, you indicated in your intake that you're here because of energy issues, uh, you're concerned about sleep apnea, um, sexual dysfunction or ED. Um, th these are some of the top things that I'll, see, I'll say, but um, I, I need to understand why you haven't had success yet. And I need you to talk to me about your relationship with medications and your relationship with your own body um, and your relationship with, you know, the doctors previously. Um, and they'll kind of look at me like, well, yeah, I mean, I can kind of get at that. And I'll say, you know, you're in the financial world mm -hmm. and you guys put your pay, all of your new clients through personality tests, right? Because you know, and every other industry knows that if I don't understand you, how to communicate with you, how to work with you, it doesn't matter what product I'm offering you. Our chances of success are a lot lower. Mm. Um, so I demand upfront vulnerability and transparency. And I'll tell people, uh, you can go to my website and click on in my bio. You'll see every procedure I've ever had done to myself. I've walked, yeah. I, yeah, I've walked in from head to toe. I used to do hair transplants. I had a hair transplant. Mm -hmm. I used to do gum surgery. I've had gingival surgery, on and on and on. Um, and what I find is that people are almost in disbelief that uh, I'm meeting them in that way. Mm -hmm. And I tell them, you know, you're here because I have a lot of sexy Boy Scout badges. You know, that's what kind of draws a lot of people to me. And I, they want me to be their guy. And some of those people want to pay me a lot of money for a year to guard and shepherd and navigate their family through this labyrinth called the healthcare system and life. And it's a real honor to do that. The balancing act for physicians isn't to, in my opinion, to get in the minutia and, and be a benchtop researcher while being an excellent, excellent clinician. We are rapidly moving towards AI in the same way the financial world has its frontline legion of wealth advisors mm -hmm. who are out building the relationship, understanding the client, really digging into what that person wants out of their life. And then the back end, the higher are all the product brokers who are doing the technical stuff yep. and saying we have quants in financial world who are processing and analyzing and then delivering these products in a translatable form for you and it's we're following an algorithm that applies to 80% of people for that particular indication mm -hmm. that's happening and 
And a lot of your listeners may hear that and say, I don't like the sound of that. I'm an individual. I, I, you know, I still uh, romanticize about the black bag and the doctor. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, my black, I literally have a black bag right here. <laughs> I walk around with it, right? Um, people who can't see us, I have a black leather bag sitting next to me. Yep. And I do house calls. I do office calls. And what that has taught me is that people's context really matters. I have created a program called the Kitchen Quarterback, where instead of talking about nutrition in the office, they pay uh, one of my staff to go in the home mm-hmm. and do a laboratory. It, it, is, it is a very unsavory, somewhat chafing conversation to hear a doctor talk like this, um, but it is the reality. Are, are you a, of a positive mindset uh, going into that AI-generated um, healthcare system. Cause I do think there's a lot of benefit to it. I just talked to uh, a podcast will be coming out shortly. Joshua Budman, who, um, his company, he did some tissue analytics and wound care on wound care, um, and created a program that helps, um, doctors with chronic wounds and things like that. Um, but he's hired by NetHealth to make, I think he was saying like 80% of their company in 10 years want to be almost all based off of AI software in some way, shape, or form, whether that be billing, wound care, different applications that they're, they have going for them, um, the way they operate and all that stuff. So are, are you of a positive mindset that that's where we're heading? That it's going to help us? That it's ultimately going to be beneficial? Or as long as it's still balanced, we're good? Oh, I think it's such a great question because it just blows up um, this fog that we need to quickly eliminate from the healthcare discussion, which is, on the one hand, it, it, it makes us all realize that people really want to be valued as an individual and a human being. Mm-hmm. And it also tells us that when people hear this language and they react, it's because they still actually want relationship. Don't treat me like a number. Yep. We, I hate to tell you, but um, 95% of people have accepted being treated like a number and have done very little to get over that yeah. and change it for themselves. Yeah. So I love the spirit of the pushback mm-hmm. because I go, good, you want to be treated like an individual. You want personal touch. You, you want to be valued for your unique journey. Mm-hmm. I see human beings as unique, living, breathing, purpose-filled works of art. Okay. Um, so let's have that discussion. And if we had that discussion, it's going to lead to the responsibility that's on you, even by the, the revered CDC, which said in 2008, uh, the average American has 80% control based on how they sleep, whether they eat, what they drink, who they really, over most chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. And I think they said 40% control over your risk of eating cancer based on lifestyle. How are you, how, how, how are you doing on that? you know, with that information, yeah. um, which leads to, okay, doctor, well, what, well then you tell me, okay, time is money. Business takes time. Doing doctoring takes time. AI is a tool that is going to accelerate treatment for 80% of the most common ailments. Why? Because one of the things that we have done wrong in medicine is we've 
Any specialty in the world will create a language to go with it to protect the specialty. Mm -hmm. Inconvenient truth number five that we've brought up, I guess. Sure. Maybe. We then create these little bins. We gotta. It's we create disease names. What we're bringing, what this whole movement is bringing us back to, and what AI is highlighting is one people's desire for personal touch and be treated like a special individual. Number two is we need to talk about understanding and treating systems, not diseases. Mm-hmm. So I saw a new patient yesterday who came and has a, he came as a COVID consult. Okay. Okay. But he's got a history of Crohn's. And I said, um, so basically our discussion is about immune integrity, immune balance. That's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. We need to study your immune system and figure out all the things that influence your immune system, including the fact that you've got that uh, periodontal pocket around your upper left molar, uh, including the fact that you've got you know this eczema that you, I smell cologne on you. You know what kind of fragrances are you using? How's your immune system being stimulated? Uh, you mentioned a cat at home, but you don't like cats because they make you sneeze. So it's really a discussion about your immune system mm-hmm. and not a specific discussion per se about Crohn's. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and, what, and so yeah. what that does, what that tells you then is, all right, so AI um, isn't there to diminish my value and my uniqueness, okay? It's, um, it becomes powerful and applicable because if you take a systems approach, the reality is you, only ha- you have a limited number of systems in the body, mm-hmm. and we have a design to the body. Uh, and if you understand what that core design is and how things are meant to function and you understand how far your delta is yeah. from normal, it turns out that the, the majority of people um, have a similar uh, dysfunction. Mm. Um, and therefore, you can, you can create AI through millions and millions of samples uh, of how to get back on track. And here's how we know that AI works. People are doing Google Doctor. Mm -hmm. They're going out, they're crowdsourcing user information on their own. Well, that worked for this woman with two kids who's 45 years old in Brisbane, Australia. And it worked for that woman who's 45 years old with two kids in Boston, Massachusetts. Therefore, click, click, purchase, delivery, package open in my body, and it worked for me. They, I don't know, the the balance of that scale of like being an individual, the nice thing, in my opinion, about AI is it's like, yes, it is treating you as that individual because we need to collect data from you as an individual because if we can put it into our algorithm, our deep learning process, whatever it might be, that's like, just like you said, that's what's going to help us create the solution that helps multiple people and that we can predict what might happen and we can predict we can it can be part of that predictive process that you mentioned earlier um by using that unique individual and what's going on with them as data yeah so and what makes you unique is it's important to say out loud is far and away your head and your heart Mm -hmm. not the physiology under the hood for the vast majority of people so the danish twin study and other studies that have challenged the nature versus, versus nurture yep. debate, it's pretty clear 
that the vast majority of your risk for disease is based on nurture and not nature, not your genetic blueprint. So that's why I go back to systems-based biology, system-based medicine. And what you want from your practitioner moving forward is somebody who understands that the real action, the real work is actually up in your head for yeah. most people. Well, and like you, you talked about your thoughts becoming proteins. I mean, it does, it makes a lot of sense the way, you know, if your DNA spindles are bound up because of certain external factors, right? They're not going to get translated yeah. into proteins. Yeah. People need to be reminded of the wart studies on visualization mm -hmm. and visualizing your warts going away. People's warts went away. Really? Um, I didn't know this is one of the classic, no, it's great because this is one of the classic avant-garde, uh, research papers. that's kind of thrown into med school. Yeah. One of the very few. Okay. And I think it was in our psych, no, it was in our psychiatry rotation. Um, and just praises to uh, Western Psychiatric Institute in Pittsburgh, just an amazing place. But it's slid in there and all the students kind of light up and go, oh my God. Yeah. Mind body medicine, psychosomatic medicine, like that's <laughs> like intuitively, or like I think our spirit all know that it matters because for our own life. Yeah. People battling IBS know that when they're more stressed out, their gut goes south. Yep. Uh, people know with eczema and psoriasis that when they're stressed, they're, they get flares. Mm hmm. They're fiery on the surface. And yet, in medical school education, it was a really big, exciting moment to hear a study like that. Like, you're kidding me. Why? Because we have, we have diluted um, the experience. We've diluted our lens on the human body. And we've spit out this, this thinking, this system uh, thinking that... Um, that did not include discussions about the mind-body connection in any real way. Uh, it would add a year. It, it would add a year to training, or maybe we need to get rid of a year of training and just supplant it. But either way, what we're faced with is the reality that when it comes to a debate about AI, the real debate is who are the curators for making sure that um, it's it's validated for that it's not overreaching. Mm -hmm. um, and that it takes into account to the best of its ability in a way that's alive as an organism and evolving as we move forward in time, the mind-body connection and the need for personalization. Mm -hmm. But you know who's really leading this, um, interestingly, from where I sit, is uh, the modern specialty lab companies. Okay. Yep, the companies that are doing things like... Um, uh, analyzing the gut microbiome in our patients. So all of my patients, most of my patients, I should say, we study their microbiome. We have them collect some stool. Mm -hmm. Medicine's humbling people. <laughs> um, we have them, we have them collect some stool and we have them collect some spit and, and, and some urine. Yeah. And we take this discussion about the gut brain axis mm -hmm. and we make it a little more objective. Those companies are really cool. They are immensely helpful for a guy like me to accelerate care um, with, with the modern patient. But what they're also doing is they realize that um, when they give us our reports on the data, these reports are 12, 13 pages long. And they're developed, they've developed their own databases mm -hmm. of, so the patients that get a, a stool test they fill out a small questionnaire. The company that does that testing, yep. they have 
hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have filled out that questionnaire mm -hmm. and have produced this objective data about their gut health. Yep. Things like presence of pathogens, E. coli, salmonella, uh, H. pylori, things like um, do I have calprotectin, a, a, readily, uh, a, a widely recognized uh, marker for gut inflammation. And that AI doesn't lie. If you've got a million people that are saying that I don't sleep well, I'm dissatisfied with my work, um, I feel tired, I rely on caffeine a lot, and I have high levels of acromancia, and I have high zonulin indicating leaky gut, and I have low secretory IgA, my immune system's low, and I was just diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, like that picture I just painted for you, the reason it rattles off the top of my head is we see it all the time. Mm. So systems-based biology and thinking, the vast majority of people have a design that when it's honored and measured and respected, it works pretty darn well. Yep. Therefore, you can, that means the Toyota business model can be applied there a little bit. You know, truly, if it's done right, uh, you can correct systems uh, with, with, with an 80% program. Like the same program, if you're doing the right intake questionnaire, if you're understanding the landscape and you have high enough numbers and you're using AI, you can deliver templates of care in a pathway that I'm telling you I do mechanically every week in my practice that will work for about 70% of people. I, I'm already doing it. I am, I am the AI. Yeah. But what I'm telling you is this profile walks into my patient, into my practice 70% of the time. They spit out this data 70% of the time, and I apply this template 70% of the time. Yep. So genetically, uh, the language is maybe genetics influence 15% of your health fate. What I'm telling you my practices and my estimation, uh, there's about a 30% margin for customization. Okay. And almost entire that um, almost all of that, a lot of that has to do more with the psychology, the head and the heart, psychosomatic medicine, behavior modification. Okay. Therefore, I'm just moving the AI from my brain to a computer that somebody who costs less could administer, and I oversee. Gotcha. That has to happen. That is happening. Specialty lab companies are driving a lot of that. And for people who don't like the sound of that, um, I really hope they re-listen to this conversation. Yeah, because, I mean, that's part of the solution in decreasing the cost of medicine that, like, I, everybody's bringing up, right? And then that leaves more resources to focus on some of the stuff that you're doing where it is, like, the, the mind and the heart um, and realigning and focusing more on that proactive approach and, well and helping people understand what's possible right now yeah because healthcare is mm -hmm. evolving so quickly yep um you know what stem cells meant to us in 2009 when i first started doing them versus what they mean now we just as an example we just got a new technology in last week i think we're the first practice in milwaukee to do this but uh there is the we're, we're living in the era of the liquid biopsy now mm -hmm. number two killer being cancer we've done you know, it's, it's unimpressive how much uh, we've improved cancer care, to be honest. But what we now have is for 900 bucks, you walk in, get a blood draw. You don't have to even be fasting for it. And it will screen you for the top 40 cancers. Wow. 
that based based on um, uh, modified uh, DNA fragments that are floating through your bloodstream, which scientists have figured out, um, are highly predictive for very very early stage cancer. Okay. Okay. So helping, we need to be educating. Doceria mm-hmm. means teach on what's possible while tapping into the greatest motivators, which are the emotional center for you of what you really want out of your life. And then the mechanical stuff, your testosterone's high or low. Um, that's pretty easy if you're a competent clinician. Yeah. Um, but educating on what's possible, really helping you understand what you want because the majority of people, um, they've, they've conditioned themselves or they've been in circumstances that have conditioned themselves to live well but below the Arete day, to well to live well below their potential, which is why Tony Robbins and others who I respect are are getting um, these these coaches are getting more and more popular because there is something inside of us that I call the central tension of life, whereby we every day realize we are at point A. That's me and you sitting here right now, yep. where we're at in our personal lives, our physical health, our financial journey. And we have this B point of where we think we should be ideally. This is the central tension of life for all of us. And we, there's three ways to resolve it. One is slowly make changes every day to move towards ideal, yep. which takes work. It takes help. It takes a community. It takes navigation. It's going to take AI. Um, and the alternative is I compromise my ideal because why? Sometimes it's because I give up and I don't want to do the work. Yeah. Very often what I learn is people don't understand what the possibilities are for getting there to B point. Sure. And they haven't had the right community or connection uh, to help them. And I think men in America largely fall into that category. I'm so excited about the movement of men's health. I'm so excited that we're at a critical mass in America of men who are saying, I heard that there's a different path. Yeah. Right. For getting from my A point to my B point and and, and what, what, they're, what they're slowly tearing down is this banner over men that says men have, you know, they're stubborn. They don't go to the doctor. They don't listen. They don't want to be better. Yeah. Okay. Which, which, which is false. <laughs> which is false. Yeah. But it is a pervasive message that men are still climbing out from under. And uh, they don't respond to the same marketing ploys um, that women do. Mm-hmm. But that's the central tension of life. This idea that men don't want to be better, the idea that men don't want to lose their belly fat and you know, the idea that men don't want to sleep better. I mean, and the idea that all men care about are boners and biceps, mm-hmm. it's false. And we get to engage with guys and say, oh, what you heard is true. Yeah. Here's, here's the central tension of life, right? Like you want to get here, but you haven't heard like, you know, talk to me like I am who I am. Sure. Um, and that means some dudes need to sit and talk for 20 minutes with their doctor about whether Aaron Rodgers is leaving the Packers. <laughs> yeah. But That's the some... first three steps in their path to getting better. Yep. And you go, really? Yeah, because you know what happens with that guy when, he, when I'm serving him on his unique journey is the mechanical part about doing labs and all that, yeah. that's a yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yep. Yeah, doc, just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. That's what he needed. Does that make sense? Yeah, it yeah. does. And, yeah. And, and, and that's what's happening right now, even in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is we have a critical mass of men, 
every week now who are coming in and they're getting on a different path. And I don't tell them to abandon their primary care doc. I don't tell them to abandon their health, their insurance. I show them how to use those tools better. I show them how to think about it in a way that's empowering. We all have a certain amount of resources and tools in our toolbox every day as we reconcile the central tension of life from A point to B point. Um, and, and then we get to work. And some guys will hang around a little bit um, longer than others, you know, and some guys, it's not uncommon for guys to get into, through what I call the, 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 the first phase, which is three visits to build their metabolic MRI. We do all the advanced testing and show them what their true risk stratification is. We show them uh, not what's normal, but what's optimal for them. Mm-hmm. We show them um, where we think they should be empowering themselves. I'm wearing a whoop right now and I'm wearing an aura ring. And then we, I, I take time to look at their team and I give them a list of questions to go back to their team with their dentist, their chiropractor, their primary care doc, their cardiologist. And that takes about three visits and it's awesome. I yeah. love it. Um, some guys hang around, you know, at that point. Uh, if they're still in my space at that point, I'm gonna go, okay, so uh, why, what's, what, what, why do you need to be healthier? Like, what do you wanna do with this new tool? We just built new health. Yep. We put more horsepower in, um, which, often, which often means we actually built better brakes. Which like, means what? Uh, in, scienti- or in, in neuroscience terms, that means that a large part of fixing people's bodies, if you want to drill down to systems thinking and the through lines of commonality uh, in the modern era, it would be balancing the autonomic nervous system. Okay. Moving them from the fight or flight sympathetic drive yep. to, to parasympathetic balance. And um, if, you, you know, if you just did that, showed people how to pump the brakes during the day better, m- help them master breathing, got them in touch with their, their purpose, their deep emotional why, um, you would see, and I do see every week, GI issues suddenly get a lot better. Mm-hmm. They start sleeping better. Therefore, there's more growth hormone at night released. Therefore, the next day they have less shoulder inflammation. Um, they have more capacity to resist temptations and this massive wave of addiction that's continued to grow in America. Uh, so I really mean that. Um, you know, these, these, the, this, is, this is the ills of the modern era. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we we can go into those hacks, balancing the autonomic nervous system, mastering breathing, uh, getting them straight about their purpose. Do you know that we just did a survey of 124 intake forms in my practice? And the there's a question there that says, what's the biggest piece of your stress pie? Mm-hmm. Is it finances? Is it home? Is it your body? Is it health? Is it work? The number one response was purpose. There's an existential issue in America. We are so spoiled. We're so comfortable in this country. Um, Modern man and woman are reconciling their need to have forced adaptation in their life. Their need to be, uh, have unplanned challenges in their life, right? But that's a reality. So if, if I, as a, as a clinician am, in working on those areas, if I'm if I am not turning a blind eye to the fact that the number one unmet public health need is mental health, and the survey in my own practice 
would show that to some extent mm-hmm. as the, the people find the greatest stress right now. And my practice is mostly successful people is their purpose. And they have deviated from the developmental model that got them to this point. Yeah. Um, if I'm not addressing that, but I'm having them inject testosterone and I'm having them take $300 a month worth of supplements, which in some cases is actually needed. Yep. And I've got them on metformin and a couple anti-aging optimization drugs. Uh, I can just tell you after 20 years of doing medicine, they don't move the needle fast. They, they, it's, it's a long, long uphill battle. Um, the really exciting thing is despite its complexity, despite the misidentity, uh, or the identity crisis that the healthcare system is, has lived through and is sort of coming into, um, it's post adolescent phase here mm-hmm. where forces are and COVID being one of them are yep. bringing to light the fact that, uh, it's time to talk about identity and who's doing what it's time to talk about that from a practitioner system side It's talk time to talk about that from a patient side, despite of all this, we are in the most exciting time in history in medicine. Think about it. I just told you we've got liquid biopsies. So extremely early detection of cancer for the simple blood draw. Mm-hmm. We've got AI accelerating the delivery of care for 80% of people so that you can free up time to deal with what really matters, which is the head and the heart and the purpose in your future, which if you start to get that into alignment and put people in the right community, society and culture change radically. Therefore, yeah. you're not as dependent on the media to tell you how you should be thinking and feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, so you among others that I've talked to, um, the nice thing is, is everybody is fairly optimistic. Even in all of this, like, uh, day and age of like the, like you just mentioned the media, just this barrage of what would be negative, uh, negative energy, negative inputs all the time, um, negative news story that, that they are still positive about the direction that we're heading due to a lot of the technology, due to the way we're changing our, our thinking, uh, due to the way that the culture is shifting. Um, so as we kind of had this like very broad discussion about um, like the, this post COVID-19 era that we're um, kind of in now and how it's changed healthcare and how um, you guys at Arise are, are kind of changing the way you're delivering your healthcare and approaching patients. You wanted to talk a little bit about perioperative care um, mm. and some of the challenges that we're facing um, pre and post surgery. Um, and so what is the, the major overall issue that you've found with the way we're currently doing things? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you, you bringing that in here. Um, you know, there, we can't escape economic pressures and we can't escape the, the rigid definition that the system works within. And um, again, I said I'm going to keep coming back to patient responsibility. Um, you know, as, as an example, hospitals in January 1st, I don't know if people realize this, but hospitals were mandated for the first time in history to put on their website the top 300 procedures and what they cost that are in that hospital. Mm-hmm. It's the Transparency Act. And the hospital's leading association in America uh, took it to federal court to try to appeal that law and lost. 
but that should be a real indication to people of how rigid the system is, how rigidly it's built. Okay. Yeah. So they're, yeah. they're living outside of the other economic pressures that other industries, every other industry faces. Like if you offer a service, you have to tell people what it costs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. So that's how well-defined the system is. I also said there's, it's a mass unit glorified brought home. It emphasizes procedure, surgeries, critical care. Yeah. Within that is surgery. Um, if it isn't the biggest revenue generator in the hospital, it's got to be number two. What we have historically done in the, in the spirit of a mass unit is we brought people in off the field. In this case, it's the treadmill of life. It's the climb of life. Um, it's the rat race. And with broken bodies, and we have made sure, and I'm a surgeon speaking, mm -hmm. that under the hood, they're not going to bleed to death. Uh, and that the heart's working decently enough to get them through general anesthesia. Yep. Basically how we screen people. Uh, we, we do check the lungs as well to make sure they're not going to burst a bleb or something in, under anesthesia. That thing called surgery is a planned insult and trauma to the human body. Mm -hmm. Just like getting COVID, just like anything else. The body's immune system revs up. A whole bunch of shifts happen during that planned trauma. Now, thankfully, we, uh, we have a, a really well-developed system for getting people through that. But how well do they really do on the other side? And in the year 2021, are, are we being responsible as patients and as clinicians in preparing the human body for this planned insult, this planned trauma? And there's three things that come up over and over in my practice. I love getting paid by patients around the country to talk about preparing the body for surgery and recovering um, because it works. Mm -hmm. And three really simple things that I, uh, that I really want your listeners to have. One is, if there is any question about sleep apnea, if you have a neck size of 16 and a half or more, if you snore heavily at night, if you find yourself falling asleep in the afternoon, if there's any question about sleep apnea being present for you, please hit the pause button on a surgery that's not emergent, that's not an urgent situation, and get screened and make sure you don't have that. I had one patient die on my service who was a healthy 35-year-old dude um, when I was in Pittsburgh. Um, he, had, he had sleep apnea, and he had a stroke post in recovery. So we know that if you have untreated sleep apnea, your risk for an arrhythmia, your risk for a fatal event and stroke goes up significantly. That's whether you're going through surgery or not, by the way. Sure. And it is a way underdiagnosed issue in our country. Mm. Uh, we work with third-party companies, so you can do that testing at home. But number one would be if there's any question about sleep apnea, please get screened before you undergo general anesthesia and uh, are then left in an, a recovery room for an overnight stay in a hospital. Um, yes, it's true that the system, uh, there are 400,000 deaths every year in our country that are blamed on medical error. It's a number three or four killer in America. Okay, I'm trying to cut into that. So sleep apnea number one. Number, number two would be if you don't poop well or you have irritable bowel, some days you're constipated, some days you've got to go to the bathroom four or five times, you have urgency, sometimes you see blood in the stool. Remember, 70% of the immune system, which your body is going to call upon in an extreme fashion to recover from surgery, mm -hmm. is around your 
GI tract, that 25 feet of small and large intestine, and the immune system lining that waste tract, if it's out of balance, your chances of having an efficient recovery that's less painful, less inflammation, are lower. Yeah. So hit the pause button, get your GI tract evaluated. At the very least, start taking some magnesium citrate or some Miralax the week before to really clean out your GI tract. Okay. Not just fasting 24 hours before surgery. <laughs> We've been, think about it. Yeah, that's... The 70% of the immune system, I don't know how you figure out it's 70%, but I know the majority of the immune system is around the GI tract. One of the barometers for how evolved we are or whether or not a topic in medicine needs to be revisited is simply look at the protocols, the instructions, and how much they've changed in the last 20 years. Which probably hasn't for that recommendation just no. to be like... Instructions preparing first. somebody for surgery yeah. in a hospital setting have changed very little in 20 years. Um, ladies and gentlemen, that's a problem. It's a $4 trillion for-profit industry, okay? And the greatest change in healthcare is going to happen and continue to happen because of you, the people, mm -hmm. forcing the change. Yep. Take responsibility for yourself. Screen yourself for sleep apnea if there's any question at all. If your GI tract is off, get it fixed and corrected and improved before you undergo surgery. And the, the third thing is... Um, Make sure that you have a very clear understanding of what your resources are post-operatively. And within that kit, if you will, whether it's the right physical therapy group, um, that wasn't a design plug, by the way, but I like how it landed there. <laughs> um, uh, but whether it's the right physical therapy group, what your insurance is or is not going to pay for, um, whether or not uh, acupuncture, et cetera, are a part of that. But understand what post-operatively your resources are and make sure that includes a discussion about controlling inflammation and controlling pain. The number of times that I see a, a guy or a woman calling up my office or coming to seek me in the post-operative setting because of issues related to pain man management, medication management, they failed to get medications filled before surgery, um, you know, including like their blood pressure medication kind of ran out while they're in the post-operative phase and they're at home for two weeks and plan ahead. Yeah. And people will say, well, you don't understand. I tried to call the office and they told me, look, uh, you're cleared for surgery. Um, you know, we don't deal with this other stuff. You have to be your own best advocate. And if it means getting another doc like me or, or just calling or stopping by their office yeah. and saying, look, your payday is based on me going through this planned trauma we call surgery. It's a big deal. People have complications. Um, and it's going to greatly affect my life if I don't do this right. Uh, just getting you through surgery and not killing you and making sure the wound heals has largely been the barometer for whether or not it's a success or not. But I see how it impacts people's lives, their homes, their work, their quality of life. And what I'm saying is a little bit of planning up front, including discussions about controlling inflammation and pain afterwards and all, all your other medications lined up. Do you have the refills you need? Because you may be laid up on the couch for two weeks. You may have a minor complication like um, a little bit of a bleed or you had... Uh, some shortness of breath in the recovery room or a bleep on your EKG that you end up spending an unexpected week in a hospital. 
Mm-hmm. The last thing I'll say in terms of that is that discussion is patient, we know, and we've known for decades that patients who undergo general anesthesia, a hundred percent of the time they get a metabolic acidosis. It's transient, but your, the human cell will go to great lengths to maintain three things, pH, hydration, and temperature. Mm-hmm. When it comes to pH, it wants the, the optimal acidity or alkalinity for that inner environment of a cell is about 7.2. But when you undergo general anesthesia, you become acidic. And uh, drinking alkaline water is not enough, okay? It's just not. My brother's a PhD water scientist. We talk about this all the time. It's not going to do it. But what can do it is immediately after surgery, well, leading up to surgery, take the recommended 400 to 800 milligrams of magnesium. We, we, it's widely accepted that the average working adult in America needs extra magnesium. The soil quality, nutrient density, uh, we don't have the mineral content that we used to. And life is more acidic now than it was before. Um, we'll leave it at that for now. But a very simple thing that I do with my patients is say, look, here's some data on metabolic acidosis that happens transiently. You're having a bone cut. It's called an osteotomy. Uh, your orthopedic surgeon knows that bone cells, osteoblast, osteoclast, do not like an acidic environment. They shut down. Take some magnesium. Ask if you can take some magnesium immediately after surgery, like that night. Um, get alkalinized as quickly as possible so that you're creating the inner terroir, the inner environment for these cells to work optimally. Mm-hmm. When I say all that, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it seems kind of basic. You want to create the best environment. I mean, every all the three phases that you talked about, right? Sleep is one of the best ways to help your body recover. And if you've got sleep apnea, you're obviously not getting the benefits that sleep is supposed to provide. Um, you're talking about creating the, the proper chemical environment within your body to, to, to help out. And then... Uh, the third one, which is escaping me, which was the preparation, second, which was preparation. Yes. For um, and planning for managing inflammation and pain and having your other basic meds in order. The, and you mentioned sleep. Thank you. Just reminded me. Yeah. The other thing is uh, that you, people don't sleep in hospitals. Yeah. It's tough. It's yeah. it's it's a mic drop. Right. <laughs> like, wait a minute. You get 50% of your growth hormone released in deep non-REM stage four sleep called delta sleep, slow wave. Mm -hmm. And we don't give our patients who are trying to heal their own internal growth hormone release when they're trying to heal and they need it most. The other thing that happens due to sleep deprivation and stress is we know that testosterone levels plummet in hospitalized patients, which is why I was given one rule about testosterone during my residency, which is, we never check testosterone in hospitalized patients because it's always going to be lower than when they're at home. But why would, yeah, why, yeah, then the question is, is why wouldn't you do something to help that? You tell me, my friend. <laughs> I mean, right. But, because what is, yeah. what does that signal called testosterone really mean to a healing patient who's just gone through a planned trauma? It's a huge anabolic signal. Yeah, it needs to build up. Yeah. Yep. And we're doing joint surgery? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, I know when I have, I had brain surgery when I was a kid and therefore I've, I've had to uh, be a citizen scientist for most of my adult life, which does include using exogenous testosterone sometimes. Mm -hmm. When I take, and I was a quarterback and pitcher when I was younger, so my right shoulder probably needs a lot more freedom PT than I'm willing to sure. admit right now. <laughs> but I know this much, when I take my topical testosterone and rub it on that right shoulder and rub it in deep, my shoulder feels better. So I'm wondering why more citizen scientists and forward-thinking orthopedists wouldn't be more critical, not just about screening for sleep apnea, but also screening for testosterone and estrogen. Estrogen's a potent anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And, uh, and then, third, you know, then the other piece would be like, for God's sake, let's figure out how to help people sleep in the hospital so they can get that endogenous growth hormone release. Yeah. Yeah. That it is interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, they wake you up early to try to, they, they don't necessarily monitor that. They how much wake sleep you up. They wake you up to, to check on you. To check on you. Yep. Which is. So do we really believe the Albert Schweitzer quote that we're at our best when we let the inner physician go to work? Yeah. The system hasn't really honored that. Sure. Again, if you're in a mass unit in World War II, bleeding to death, shortage of resources, sure. You may go in and wake the soldier up and, you know, but we're in the year 2021. Yeah. And what I'm saying is these signals and threats on the body should be evaluated and optimized before someone goes through a planned trauma called surgery. And if you do that, you'll stay out of trouble. People do better. And when they come to you, if those things are optimized, they're less acidic, their anabolic signals that include testosterone and DHEA and growth hormone are optimized. Um, their sleeping, their sleep apnea has been corrected. They're going to be a lot uh, better patient in the PT arena too. Oh, a ton better. I mean, they're not going to. You're, you're already farther along in the ball game, which is part of a, a big part of the battle. And then you're focusing on a lot other things that are going to better. You're using more of maybe your insurance visits or your Medicare dollars, right, to work towards getting you back to that peak physical condition you were in before and maybe better than you were before rather than just trying to make a little bit of progress back to baseline. Um, and it, even with like, you know, Mike's TMJ stuff, it's like we're screening for sleep apnea and airway and all that stuff because just like you said, like if that's not taken care of, he can do all of the soft tissue work in the world, but it might not fix your problem. Yeah. Um, so... What if we yeah. threw some VR goggles on them when they're in the recover when they're in the hospital recovering, um, and they could see themselves moving through, oh, uh, sure, certain exercises or healing or just visualization. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that hard, uh, but you know patients and patients can start asking for this stuff. Let me mention a couple things about COVID quick, and then I know we got we got to. Uh, jam, but I really feel an obligation to let people know that, yes, we're in a low transmission season because it's summertime. Um, but there is, um, there is a technology and a tool that's available to people called a blood draw mm -hmm. to understand when you're moving from week one of symptoms to week two, specifically after day 10, between day, we see day 10 to 14 as a critical period for COVID. Okay. 
And what we do very simply, and it should have been made available and uh, uh, the American public made aware of it back in January of 2020, but we just, at that critical turning point, going from the viral phase to the immune phase, we assess the body. Yeah. We do a blood draw. And we look at the immune system to see if you're storming or about to storm, the cytokine storm. The really good news is that laboratory testing has now evolved, and there's been some amazing work done by Dr. Bruce Patterson and his group at Stanford and their lab at InCell Diagnosis, I-N-C-E-L-L-D-X, to understand how to take that information and make it very actionable through the use of precision medicine. So borrowing what we learned through HIV we can now look at those cytokines and see which ones are out of whack, which ones are storming, and apply therapeutics that we know specifically target those cytokines okay. to drive down those cytokines back into homeostasis and balance the immune system. And I've seen dramatic turnaround in symptoms in patients within two weeks. So number one, don't be shocked if you get COVID. We've seen, we're seeing new cases every week right now. Don't be shocked if you've been vaccinated and you get COVID. We're it's going to potentially mutate just like the flu does, right? Well, we're seeing the variants, yeah. yeah. Um, and we're also seeing that uh, the vaccine is probably 60%, more like maybe 50% effective. Okay. But every week now we're seeing people who, last week I saw three new patients who never had COVID, got vaccinated, and then got COVID during a low transmission time, which is the summertime. Yeah. So don't be surprised. Also, don't be surprised if you, if your medical intuition, your inner physician is saying, I might have COVID despite having gotten vaccinated, and you go get a rapid test and it's negative. Okay. We've seen a lot of people come to us too late in the game who said, well, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't look for a doctor or challenge my primary care doctor about it being more than flu because my rapid test was negative. Mm -hmm. We've seen lots of people whose rapid tests are negative, their PCR comes back positive, or their PCR comes back um, uh, questionable. Sure. And they end up having antibodies against COVID a month later, and uh, we're talking about long hauler. So long hauler is just somebody who got COVID, they had the typical symptoms of fatigue, maybe some upper respiratory stuff, change in taste and smell, maybe a little bit of GI upset. Um, in men over 50, a fair amount of nighttime sweat, um, wet sweats uh, at night, and they recover. They say, you know, I was about 90% better. And then I went and worked out. And what happens then is um, they start to tank. They, they, the symptoms come back, but then they start to be progressively worse. Notably, cough, shortness of breath, really bad fatigue, and the night sweats return. Um, there, a lot of these people will be placed on antibiotics. They'll be told that the, the, the primary will get a chest X-ray. The chest X-ray doesn't show that ground glass appearance or significant changes. And uh, they end up finding me through what's called the FLCCC Alliance, which was started by Dr. Paul Merrick, who's a hero in the world, world of virology, one of the most published, published intensivists in the world. And Dr. Pierre Corey, who's a Wisconsin product uh, intensivist, pulmonologist. Um, but uh, through the Alliance, they'll find me. And I say, what, what? You're, you're 28 days into your journey through COVID. Timing really matters. Why did it take you so long to get here? Yeah. You have resources. You go to Mayo Clinic for executive physicals. Like, what are you thinking? 
And what I hear over and over is, well, wait a minute, you know, don't come after me, doc. My nasal swab was negative. <laughs> I saw my primary care doc and my nasal swab was negative. So they thought it was just the flu. They put me on antibiotic. You know, how am I supposed to know? And you're just screaming, listen to your body, man. Yeah, listen to your body. But also I'm really sympathetic now to the fact that people are undereducated about COVID. Okay. Number one, just know that this is happening weekly know that men are having about a 50 to 60 percent higher response from the immune system and therefore more inflammation almost all of the long haulers in our practice are male okay know that timing matters uh if you start to get symptoms that are consistent with covid whether you've been vaccinated whether you had covid before or not i've had covid twice um i didn't get a strong antibody response but i'm convinced that i got strong t-cell response but just understand that taking ivermectin, mm-hmm. the antiparasite agent that's over 4 billion doses have been handed out worldwide, has an extremely low risk for side effects and an extremely high chance of rapidly knocking down the viral load inside of you so that your immune system doesn't rev up. Timing matters in the viral phase. Yeah, I think there was just a very public discourse because uh, it was on Joe Rogan and obviously big podcast about ivermectin. Um, and why it wasn't prescribed, at least at the beginning. Um, it largely, I think, had to do with some of the economic workings of the healthcare industry uh, a little bit. But um, well, it's yeah, from what yeah, I understood. Yeah, and it, for people who haven't listened to it, you should. You should. It's Joe Rogan interviewing Dr. Pierre Corey. Yep. And uh, Brett Weinstein, the evolutionary biologist, and. The take home is that um, you really need to be familiar with the FLCCC Alliance guidelines. Their early prophylaxis or their early treatment and their prophylaxis or prevention protocols. Mm -hmm. And in short, what you need to know is that, I mean, I I want, and to echo Dr. Pierre Corey, um, who has been a a really wonderful mentor to me, uh, along with Dr. Paul Merrick and Bruce Patterson, I'm so grateful to have these people who in February of this year were uh, had invited me in to just simply look at the literature yeah, and recognize that this very, very safe antimicrobial known as ivermectin, which is uh, is not a concern to some of the governing bodies around the world in terms of side effects when it's applied for its use as an anti-parasite agent mm-hmm. has suddenly become a concern about side effects when it's used as a treatment for COVID or used for prevention. It just doesn't really make sense or add up. And even just saying those comments, I put myself at risk because there's a huge economic pressure, um, apparently, to sure. uh, not put ivermectin in the hands and not make the education available uh, to the point where YouTube took down the YouTube video yeah. of Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm-hmm. But the data is overwhelming. The science is there. And I guess what I really want to do is not get into that. I want to speak to what is happening week in, week out in my practice here in Milwaukee through telemedicine around the country and uh, our local patients. I can tell you, we have not had, knock on wood, we haven't had any of our patients who follow our guidelines get hospitalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of, I mean, of COVID patients of all different severities. Um, we haven't had anybody die. 
and uh, our patients, even those who are at high risk, quote unquote, because of their age, because they're male, because they've had a history of heart and lung disease, um, because they've had a history of uh, autoimmune disease, um, none of them have had um, persistent complications. Okay. Now, and furthermore, when we've been referred patients from outside our practice, when they're in the later stages, when they're out, out of the viral phase, into the immune phase deep, um, when we've applied the protocols following FLCCC, uh, people have recovered. Mm -hmm. The most dramatic example in recent times would be last week, a person who came to me who thought he was at day seven, but when we looked at his history, he was day 28. It wasn't the flu, it was COVID. And he's in my parking lot, I'm dressed up like a Smurf, listening to him, doing a blood draw in the parking lot and putting this all together, his lungs were scary. He was sweaty and clammy in the parking lot. His wife was changing the sheets every morning because he was sweating through all the sheets every night for over two weeks. Wow. We put him on ivermectin, fluvoxamine, pravastatin, a temporary statin. I don't write a lot of statin drugs, but it's about endothelial health. COVID is a vascular disease. It's vasculitis. So we do everything we can to improve vascular health in the short term to get this guy's immune system to reset. Mm -hmm. And within 48 hours, he was feeling 40% better by his estimation. Yeah. Within four days, he's 70% better. His lungs sound better. He looks better. He's not sweating through sheets at night. And what is he asking? Why did I have to go through a month of this yeah. if within four or five days? And so what part of this podcast is about is just making people aware that you should be following the FLCCC Alliance. You should consider a consult with a doctor like myself or see about getting ivermectin at home in your apothecary so that if you become symptomatic, you can immediately start dosing this drug, which works as an antiviral has some anti-inflammatory properties, but helps reduce viral load. Yeah. The other things that we do to help reduce viral load is, again, a bit controversial, but we work with a, a company called Biobotanical Research, and they make a product called Biocidin. And Biocidin is something that's been used for a decade to help reduce flu symptoms, shorten the duration of flu symptoms. Uh, it's a wonderful adjunct. It's 17 herbs that you can spray in the back of the throat. There's one human study showing an increase in antibodies but we know anecdotally from the network through biobotanical research that it is highly effective at reducing the contraction of flu, but we've seen it work very well in shortening COVID symptoms as well. So we do that, and um, certainly people are welcome to reach out. Uh, you can just email info at ArizeMD if you want more information about that, but at least be aware that if you or a loved one's uh, getting that seven to 10 day mark for symptoms, go get a blood draw and look under the hood. Don't live in fear. Don't pace the house wondering if you're gonna, you know, end up in the ICU. Go study your body through a blood draw and find out what the true state of affairs is. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like just like the kind of overriding theme of what we've been talking about. It's like be your own uh, citizen scientist. In this specific case, apply it to COVID. Yep. And, and and do yourself a favor and, and get it looked at. Exactly right. You can go to lifeextension.com. 
you can buy your own lab requisition. Mm -hmm. What do we order? We order a CBC, we order a CMP, we order uh, a SED rate, a D-dimer to make sure there's not any clotting going on. Um, we look at ferritin and liver function and I do a urinalysis. Um, and if you're further down the line, if you're like this gentleman who came and thought, well, I think I'm about a week to 10 days into it. No, you're, you're 28 days in. Uh, it's worth looking at in-cell diagnosis and going ahead and just ordering the long hauler panel mm -hmm. and looking at your cytokines in more depth. That's about a $380 investment. Um, the, the simpler panel that you can order through my office or through Life Extension might cost you 100 bucks. But yeah, study yourself. It just breaks my heart that so many millions of Americans continue to live in fear mm -hmm. because they don't know. Yeah. And when we don't have a sense of path for the what ifs, we get anxiety. Which and is understandable. It, yep. But yeah. There is, that, there is a path. Yep. COVID is fairly predictable at this point. Mm -hmm. And it, um, yeah, if you get to day 10, you, it's extremely unlikely that you still have replicating virus. Or you, you need to worry about going to a clinic. Certainly wear a mask. That's fine. But go get a blood draw as you're turning from day in that day 10 to 14 period. Um, and uh, that can be the basic blood draw through my office. But if you're further out, then you may want to go ahead and just get the in-cell DX panel. Yeah, I think one of the good one of the things that would be good to do now would be to um, plug plug your business, plug your website. Um, Sure. Not, not just obviously for business reasons, but it's a good, it's an excellent resource. Yeah. Thank you. We, uh, um, we do our best and it's arisemd.com, A-R-I-S-E-M-D.com. We are helping people get above the fray, the healthcare fray. That's the arise part. Um, and you can book your 30 minute COVID appointment right there online. Um, and then there are, there's some, I've got some blog articles with some of the links to the groups that we've talked about. Uh, on the website. And then we do have a store where that I mentioned Biocidin that is in there. Um, and yeah, we're trying to build it out to be even a better resource for people, but yeah, don't live in fear. Don't live in ignorance. And not just for COVID-19. I mean, you've got, um, different supplements and like you talked about the, uh, the gut biopsies yeah. or the biomes and, yeah. um, they've got kits in there for that. You've got an excellent CBD and hemp, uh, line for addressing gut health needs and other, other, I think like topical solutions. Yeah, we like did that. two years. We funded two years of research in my practice on CBD and we use it as an immune modulator to help with anxiety, insomnia, and irritable bowel with great success. Migraines, we, we've got uh, nine out of 10 people respond with my, our migraine protocol. And I firmly believe that we need to uh, continue to make testing available to people, even if they aren't a formal patient. Yeah. I think that access to that information, it's your body, it's a free world. Um, I want people to have access to those tools. And so, yes, we offer those specialty kits right on our store for people to go buy a stool kit. You don't have to be a patient, get your results and then do some homework on your own. And then if you want to have a quick 15 minute overview from myself or one of my health coaches, mm -hmm. uh, then you can book that from someone who's been doing telehealth for a while. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. Yeah. We've, we've been doing telehealth for four years now. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Uh, Dr. Miller, it was a really fun conversation. You're an excellent storyteller. Thank you. Uh, just like you said, you're very captivating and um, 
really driving at that emotional side of everyone's brain. So, mm. um, thanks for all the work that you do and, and all of the experiences you've undergone to get to where you are now. Um, excellent having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And if anybody has specific questions or feedback, they can actually email me directly at adam at if they want. Perfect. We'll include all of those links in the show notes as well. Great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, providing one-on-one comprehensive physical and occupational therapy services, including women's health, chronic pain treatment, TMJ, and more. With four locations in Fox Point, Grafton, Brookfield, and McGuanago, Wisconsin, more information at freedompt.com.